Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear, recording this on Saturday night, July the 6th, and it finally happened. Kawhi Leonard made his decision, signed with the Los Angeles Clippers. Paul George, in a stunner, traded to the Los Angeles Clippers overnight. The Los Angeles Lakers fill out their roster. The moratorium is lifted. An incredible day in the NBA offseason. And here on After the Final Whistle, I am going to take a look specifically at the fallout from Kawhi Leonard signing with the Clippers, from Paul George being traded to the Clippers. Look at it from the Clippers' perspective. Talk about Oklahoma City's angle of this, how their future looks, how does a Russell Westbrook trade potentially look, and what options are there. You know, what does the Toronto Raptors' next step look like? How good can they be? And then ultimately, looking at the Lakers and assessing really, you know, where they are at as far as their championship aspirations for this year are concerned. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. So let's get right into it with the Los Angeles Clippers aspect of this. And what this showed with Kawhi Leonard ultimately choosing the Los Angeles Clippers, with him recruiting very heavily Paul George to get in a trade request to get himself to the Los Angeles Clippers, the draw in this offseason, we saw it with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. We're seeing it here with Kawhi Leonard. The draw in these specific cases for these elite talents is the organization with the good organizational infrastructure that has showed that it can win and has a stable management structure, ownership group, and coach more so than the name brand legacy franchises. The Los Angeles Clippers took the Golden State Warriors to six games in the first round of the playoffs this past year. The Brooklyn Nets made it to the playoffs, took the Sixers to five games in the first round. The Los Angeles Clippers, for the majority of the season, were higher than the eight seed that they finished the season at. They had all that success with a lot of roster turnover, a lot of transactions focused on this offseason rather than in the particular season. Doc Rivers consistently made it work. These two teams proved that they can win. They proved that they can make an impact in the playoffs. And they were draws in free agency. Focusing specifically on the Clippers, as a whole, I really admire everything that this organization had done and has been able to do over the last year or two. You know, Lawrence Frank, the president of basketball operations, general manager Michael Winger, Trent Redden, head coach Doc Rivers, Steve Ballmer is the owner. They've all worked, and Jerry West as an executive as well, they've all worked so hard in the basketball operations side. They have consistently made great move after great move, shrewd transaction after shrewd transaction. You have one of the best coaches in the entire league. You have an owner 
who is committed to winning and providing all the resources needed to do so. And when you're the Clippers, in this scenario, to be able to draw the elite free agent talent that they did, there's no room or margin for error. There's none. And they executed everything to near perfection. And now, to me, I don't think it's particularly close. The Los Angeles Clippers are now, to me, clearly the favorites to win this year's NBA championship. Now, now let's go to the Paul George trade. Let's specifically focus on that, moving away from the organizational structure, allowing them to reap the rewards of now being perhaps the league's best team. In my mind, they are. With this Paul George trade, look, it is the greatest single trade in terms of return, in terms of draft compensation ever. It simply is. For an individual superstar, for any trade, this is the greatest individual return in terms of draft compensation ever. Five first-round picks, two pick swaps, seven affected draft picks. But, if Paul George gets you Kawhi Leonard, and in effect, this trade is essentially for both Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, in that you ensure that you get Kawhi Leonard by getting Paul George, oh my goodness, you make this trade every single time and you don't even think twice. Don't even think twice. You now have a team, this Los Angeles Clippers team, they had talked, their front office had talked about they wanted to be able to create an identity and a culture within this team where you looked at a certain type of player and when you saw that player, you would identify that player and say, that's a Los Angeles Clipper type of player. Like how people say that's a San Antonio Spur. Or in football, as Woj has said many times, that's a Pittsburgh Steeler type of player. That is what the Clippers had been striving for. The selfless, hard-playing, tough-nosed, defensive-minded, team-minded player. That is what the Los Angeles Clippers have been looking at making their distinct type of player. And now, with Paul George, with Kawhi Leonard, this team, to me... An incredible strength now. This team's ability to terrorize opponents on the defensive end of the ball. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, the two best perimeter defenders in the entire NBA. Patrick Beverly, an all-NBA caliber defender. You have those three guys playing defense on the perimeter. Good luck trying to score on that. Good luck trying to make a dent when those are the three guys on defense on the perimeter. That is an incredible trio. Incredible defensive ability. You have Paul George, who, at this point, he's coming off of the best year of his career. Top three in the MVP voting. Yes, he has a shoulder injury. Yes, he may not be totally healthy to start the season. But you now have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Two elite two-way wings. Kawhi coming off of this incredible championship run, who at this point in time has to be considered the best player in the world. 
And Paul George, who is a superstar and had the best season of his career, was top three in the MVP voting. George on that two plus one deal, you know, you can definitely see him after those two years opting out and then signing for another longer term deal. Kawhi Leonard, obviously, in there on the four for 141 max. You have these guys for the foreseeable future. And in doing so, even with this massive trade for Paul George, you've largely kept the hard-nosed, tough-playing team from last year that made the playoffs, you've largely kept that team intact um, and now surrounded it with elite, elite talent and still have the ability to add more to this team. Just going position by position here. This is a team to me, right now, is 11 deep. You have 11 playable, productive players. Patrick Beverly, as mentioned, re-signed on a three-year deal for $40 million, passed up the Kings' offer of three years for $50 million. This is a guy that every team in the league wants on their team. A bulldog, hard-nosed defender who is locked in and is going to be an absolute pest on the defensive side of the ball, can shoot threes, can handle the ball, the perfect player to have. On a team in which you have Kawhi Leonard or Paul George having the ball in their hands for the significant of majority of the time on the offensive side of the ball. Lou Williams, the perennial sixth man of the year. Moving away from Lou Will, then you get to their other guards, and there is a lot to like in these two next guards in Landry Shamit and Jerome Robinson. Landry Shamit, an all-NBA rookie second-team player last year. Really, when, when everyone talks about the Tobias Harris trade, they say, wow, they got such a great return getting two first-round picks from the Sixers and two second-round picks. And Landry Shaman is almost mentioned, you know, not, not as the prize acquisition of that trade, which he should be. Landry Shamit is going to start for this Clippers team. Landry Shamit started for this Clippers team last year. This guy is a near-elite three-point shooter and is going to continue to be for years and years and years. Jerome Robinson, they picked him 13th overall last year. Jerry West was a huge fan of his. Showed great flashes at times of being this all-around scorer on the perimeter. There's a lot to like there and a lot of offensive potential, albeit if there's not much on the defensive side, a lot of offensive potential with Jerome Robinson. And then there's Rodney Magruder, who they claimed off of waivers last year when he was waived by Miami. Rodney Magruder is a very productive wing in the modern NBA. And they were very smart with how they went about re-signing Magruder this offseason, where he was a restricted free agent. They agreed on a three-year deal for $15 million, um, rescinded the qualifying offer, kept him on that minimum cap hold, allowing them to have a bit more in space, and then ultimately signed him. But they created that little bit of space before they ultimately signed him today by agreeing on the deal, rescinding the qualifying offer, and holding that minimum cap hold. Great masterful use um, of his cap hold by the Clippers. Then you have Mo Harkless. Mo Harkless, who is a starting caliber um, tweener, who can shoot threes, who can play defense, 
simply by having cap space, took him in, took in Miami's 2023 first-round pick, lottery protected, and were able to use that 2023 Miami first-round pick in the Paul George trade. So just by having cap space, being able to take on Mo Harkless's $11 million figure for his expiring deal this year, they got themselves a starting caliber player and got themselves a first-round pick that they used as ammunition to make this Paul George trade. So really here with the Clippers, I think Mo Harkless is going to be a very useful player for them in a lot of their different five-man groups that they roll out there. I think he'll be a very useful end-of-game player as well. And they got an asset in that they used to trade for Paul George. So the acquisition of Mo Harkless as a whole was just an incredibly excellent move. And simply in the scope of what their team is now, this is a very useful player if you want to run a group out there with Patrick Beverly um, and Paul George and Kawhi with Montrez in the middle, and you want to put Mo Harkless there at the four. If you want to put Lou Williams in there, and you want to go with Lou Williams, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Mo Harkless, four guys right there, Montrez, you have lots of different options with Mo Harkless being in the fold there. So I love Mo Harkless's fit and his potential role with this team. And then you go in the middle, Montrez Harrell. I absolutely love Montrez Harrell. Vika Zubak, who they re-signed today for four years for $28 million. And then Cabin Gelly, who they drafted after trading into the first round using the Sixers first for next year. So right there, that is a group 11 deep. They still have the room exception at their disposal. So they have the ability to add more. Terrence Mann will likely get the 12th roster spot on this team. So you have three spots available to you. You still have the room exception. There is ability to add further depth and talent to this team. So you've added as high end of high end talent as you can possibly add. You still have depth. You still have the core of your team intact from last year. I love this Clippers roster. I think they're going to be a menace on the defensive side of the ball. I think with Landry Shamit and Jerome Robinson, along with Lou Williams, adding Mo Harkless, I think that their offense and their floor spacing and their shooting around the incredible two-way, all-around, two-way wing, all-around scorers that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are, I think this team is constructed very well on both sides of the ball. And I'm really excited to see how this team, how far this team goes this season. I really think that, and again, as I said earlier, I don't think it's that close. I look at this Los Angeles Clippers team, and to me, this is the favorite to win the NBA championship. Their ability to be a significant, significant force on defense, the best player in the game, another top 10 player on the team who just finished top three in the MVP voting, two-way production, all across the board, depth, optionality, and flexibility with the five-man groups they want to put out there, end-of-game options. This team, with Doc Rivers as the coach, this team really, really has the chance to be special this season. To me, I look at it right now, just looking at the West as a whole, in some order, with the Clippers at one, I think your top six teams in the West, you have the Clippers, Utah, who's had an excellent, excellent, excellent offseason. I've raved about them on my Twitter. The Clippers, Utah, 
Houston, Denver, Portland, and the Lakers. That's your top six right there in some order. And then to me, there's four teams for those last two spots. You got Golden State, you have the Pelicans, you have the Spurs, who, by the way, today, with the moratorium lifting, altering that deal with Damari Carroll to be 3-for-21 at 7 mil a year, which perfectly fit into the traded player exception that they created by trading Davis Bertans to Washington. Bertans makes 7 mil a year. They took in Carroll on a sign-in trade with Brooklyn for exactly that amount to fit into that exception, keeping their entire mid-level exception unaffected, and then giving that mid-level exception to Marcus Morris. Incredible maneuvering here by the front office. And between that maneuvering today, DeJounte Murray coming back, and in my mind making an incredible pick in the draft at 19 in Luka Samanich, this Spurs team is going to really bring the fight to make to make it into the playoffs this season. And then you have Sacramento. Sacramento, who I love the strategy and the way they went about this offseason. They didn't go and take this huge amount of space that they had and try to throw it in large amounts at individual players. They didn't go out and try to sign an Al Horford. They didn't go out and try to sign someone who would be making $25, $30 million a year. They went for depth. Trevor Ariza at 2 for 25. Dwayne Dedman at 3 for 40. Corey Joseph at 3 for 37. Rashawn Holmes on the room exception. This team is really deep. I'm excited to see how Luke Walton does at the helm with this group. I think they have a really exciting group. They were great last year. They're deeper than they were last year. They just they got close last year, didn't quite get to that playoff level or to the 8 seed level, but this is a very good team. So between these four teams, for these last two spots, it is going to be a fight. To me, I think the Pelicans are getting one of these spots. I think they've had the best possible offseason you can have. Incredible depth. Um, they've surrounded Zion and Drew Holiday with such an incredible group. Um, did so well in the draft. Acquired so many assets. The team as is defensively is going to be great. I think the Pelicans take one of those spots. And the other spot I think goes to either Golden State or San Antonio. I think the Kings, even though I love the depth that they added and love the group that they have, are probably the fourth out of those four teams on that list. So whether it's Golden State or whether it's San Antonio, I think the Pelicans are taking one of those two spots and then either Golden State or San Antonio takes that final eighth spot in the Western Conference. But man, this Western Conference is absolutely loaded for this coming season. It is going to be a joy to watch. I think the Clippers are the best team in this conference. I think the Clippers are the best team in the league. I think with these moves today, they're the favorites to win the title. And I am incredibly excited to see how this group with Kawhi Leonard, with Paul George, with Pat Bev and Lou Will and Shamit and Robinson and Montrez, Mo Harkless, how this group does out there on the court this season. Now I want to look at this incredible crazy day with this Kawhi Leonard uh, signing a Paul George trade. I want to look at it from the Oklahoma City Thunder angle. And to me, OKC's angle on this is the most interesting 
of any of the four affected teams. I am really, really, really so interested in this angle for Oklahoma City. And to me, my reaction was, regardless of how Oklahoma City thought they were positioned, regardless of how much winning they thought they could actually achieve, this is a trade that for them, in their situation, you make no matter what, no questions asked. Whatever they thought, whether they thought that, hey, we could maybe make it to the Western Conference Finals. I'm not saying I think that, but what if, even if that's what they thought, even if they thought that they could um, get back to a level where they're a top five team in the Western Conference, I don't think that that was possible, but whether they thought that that was or was not realistic, the reality of the situation was that this Oklahoma City Thunder team was likely maxed out at their best case scenario of being a six seed who could maybe, maybe, maybe win a playoff round. They could get in there at five, get in there at six, maybe win in the first round and lose in the second round. Their ceiling, their best case scenario was winning one playoff series. And with their significant financial constraints, with being in such a small market, that being your best case scenario for the incredibly high payroll and luxury tax bill that this team had, they were kind of trapped and locked into this group that had really kind of capped out and reached its ceiling and kind of reached the peak of what it is that they could achieve. I don't think that they were progressing. I don't think they had an avenue to improving. I think they were kind of, again... They had reached their glass ceiling. They had maxed out at the five or six seed that could maybe win in the first round. And when you look at this trade, as I said in the beginning, no trade of such an incredible amount of draft capital, the greatest return for any individual player ever, the greatest amount of draft capital that you could have seen in any trade, you have to make this trade with their situation. You cannot, regardless of how painful it is to have a guy like Paul George coming off of a top three MVP quality year, committed to your team last year and re-signed without even taking a meeting with the Lakers. After a year and he wants out and wants to be traded to the Clippers, sure, it hurts. It's painful. But how can you not do this deal? How can you justify not cashing in on seven draft picks an all-NBA second-team rookie who has all-star potential and a very useful veteran who has trade value who's coming off the best year of his career for a guy who, even though he had two years left on his contract, had made a trade request and wanted out. Looking at the specific capital that they got in, Miami's 2021 first-round pick unprotected. That pick really making the rounds in the league Going out to Phoenix originally in the Dragic trade, then last year's draft from Phoenix to Philadelphia in the Mikhail Bridges-Zaire-Smith trade, then over to the Clippers in the Tobias Harris trade, and now to the Thunder in this Paul George trade. The 2023 Miami first-round pick, lottery protected, over to the Clippers in the four-way sign-in trade that, as I mentioned, brought in Mo Harkless. So you have those two Miami picks. You have... 
the Clippers 2022, 2024, and 2026 first-round picks. So that's five first-round picks right there. And the Miami pick protected in the lottery in 2023, that's a pick that the protections extend out to 2026. So that's not one of those picks where if it doesn't convey that year, it goes right into being multiple seconds. That's a pick that is protected in the first round for multiple years. So there is a high likelihood of that pick conveying as a first-round pick, um, even if it doesn't in 2023. And then on top of that, you have the two Miami picks, the three Clippers picks, and then you have swap rights with the Clippers' first-round pick in 2023 and 2025. So five first-round picks, two pick swaps, seven total potentially affected draft picks. And another note here, the only pick that they acquired before 2022 is the Miami unprotected pick in 2021. 2022, as of now, the anticipated beginning of the um, double draft, per se, where you have players allowed to declare coming out of high school. So, in theory... Those drafts from 2022 on are going to be of greater strength and greater depth in theory because you're effectively having two classes within one draft. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, four years with Kawhi, the two years left on Paul George plus the one, likely him opting out and re-signing up to year two. It was very smart of Oklahoma City to acquire these picks out to 2026, the furthest out that you're allowed to trade first-round picks seven years into the future, it was very smart of them to get these picks out at the end as far out as possible because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what injuries are going to happen, how players are going to age, um, how the relationship is going to continue to progress. Getting those picks as far into the future as possible with how good the Clippers are going to be in the near term a win for Oklahoma City. So you have a significant quantity of draft capital except for one pick where you have a double draft starting in 2022 moving forward. Um, you have at your disposal immense draft capital that really, and I'll get more into this later, is the needed Kickstarter for the process of a teardown and rebuild. Um, one interesting side note from this trade is that Oklahoma City this year, their first round pick was going to the Sixers after being traded to the Sixers in the Jeremy Grant, Ursan Ilyasova trade, then traded by the Sixers to get into the first round in 2017 and pick Anjej Pesheznik's and then traded back to the Sixers from Orlando for Mark Hell Fultz along with Cleveland's second round pick this year, this past trade deadline. So this pick was top 20 protected and outside of that was going to the Sixers. The Oklahoma City Thunder are not going to be one of the best, te best 10 teams in the NBA this year. That pick when it does not convey this year, will turn into Oklahoma City seconds in 2022 and 2023. 
So Oklahoma City, they acquire those seven potential picks in the Paul George trade and then also get to keep their pick this year. So really, they're affecting eight first-round picks. So you have that significant draft capital haul right there. Miami's 2021-2023 first, the Clippers first in 22, 24, and 26, and the swap rights with the Clippers first in 23 and 25. And then getting into the player aspect, Danilo Gallinari coming off the best season of his career, played at a near all-star level, an expiring contract. That is a guy in his role as a stretch four who can be an all-around scorer who played so well last year. Yes, the injury concerns are going to be there every single year with him, but that's a player who could be useful for so many playoff contending teams. Imagine Gallinari on a team like Portland or a team like Denver or a team like Milwaukee. This is a guy who could be so useful for so many contending teams that there is value in getting him in there on an expiring contract because he is someone who can definitely be flipped for more assets. Or if Oklahoma City decides that they still want to try to remain competitive, which I don't expect, but if they did, that is a valuable piece to have. I think Gallinari and the great season he had last year has not really gotten enough recognition, and his inclusion in this trade, of course, the draft capital is going to be the main focus, but his inclusion in this trade is pretty significant. And then what I consider to be the crown jewel of this Paul George trade, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. 12th pick last year, all-rookie second team, a guy who you can look at and you saw him in his rookie year, he can clearly be looked at and you could say, that's a guy who, by the time it's all said and done, will have made the all-star team a couple of times or multiple times, um, has all the makings of really being this great modern point guard with great size, who can guard either guard spot, who's a great playmaker, who gets to the rim well, He's a very smart and heady player. Great mid-range game. Shooting coming along. Has all the makings of what you would want in your point guard. And in my mind, I think he is someone who's going to be an all-star in this league multiple times. And the picks are what is going to be focused on because of the sheer quantity of the amount of picks that were traded in this deal. But really, the greatest asset acquired in this trade is not any of those picks, and it's not Gallinari. The crown jewel of this trade is Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And look, as I said earlier, having Paul George, who committed to your city last year, one year later wanting to be traded, wanting out, wanting to go to Los Angeles, this is a painful, painful trade. It hurts. It ends what is likely the era of the Oklahoma City Thunder having superstars on their team or a superstar on their team year in and year out contending and getting into the playoffs. Sure, they could try to be competitive again this year. Again, I think that's very unlikely. Him leaving, being traded to the Clippers here, that ends this, really, this era of Oklahoma City Thunder basketball because it serves as the likely prelude to Russell Westbrook, the last of the three superstars, 
with him, Durant, and Harden, the last one remaining, this Paul George trade likely serves as the prelude to Russell Westbrook's being traded elsewhere. Um, despite all of that, the Oklahoma City Thunder 100% made the right move. If this trade demand got out, the leverage that Sam Presti would have had would have been very low. If it was not made and he did not trade Paul George, you would have had an unhappy player for two years who could have pulled a similar thing as he did in Indiana, where very early on he could have forecasted, hey, I only want to go to teams X, Y, and Z, and therefore his trade market is limited as it was with Indiana, although with Oladipo's amazing emergence, that trade ended up being great for Indiana. And then also with Sabonis playing incredibly well as well. But it would have ended in a very similar situation where Paul George would have forecasted where he wanted to go, and Oklahoma City would not have had a great return for him because he would have limited the options of where he wanted to be traded. He would have been unhappy for two years. That's not a situation you want to have. They kept the trade demand under wraps. It never was public until after the trade was made, and they got an all-time level haul in terms of draft compensation. It was 100% the right move, as painful and emotionally damaging as it is. And looking at the rest of this team, I'll get into Westbrook in a second, but when you want to kickstart the process towards rebuilding, towards tearing it down and building up, the first thing you have to do is you have to take the most valuable asset that you have and maximize the return on it. And Steven Adams has two more years at 25 mil a year. That's not a very tradable contract at all. Dennis Schroeder on two years for 15 mil. That's not a tradable contract. Russell Westbrook we'll get into in a second. Paul George here was by far the most incredibly valuable asset this team had and was the only path that Oklahoma City had towards kickstarting their rebuild with the needed asset accumulation that they were able to carry out with this trade. There is no other avenue for them to kickstart this, really, if you think about it, this needed undertaking. There is no other avenue besides trading Paul George. It was the right move. It was time. It had to be done. He for his hand was forced. Sam Presti, his hand was forced. Paul George won it out. But it was time. And it was the right move to make. And it was made. So one last thing before I get into a specific section on Westbrook with this trade. The fact that the Los Angeles Clippers were able to on hand have the ability to trade out a promising all-rookie second-team future All-Star, a veteran who played at a near All-Star level, um, three of their own first-round picks, two pick swaps for their picks, and two acquired picks from Miami. The fact that they had all of those on hand to ensure that no matter what, they got Paul George, and as a result, got Kawhi Leonard as well. Having that trade package available on hand to send to Oklahoma City for Paul George that right there is a testament to how incredible of a job the Clippers front office has done in asset accumulation and building out the roster to be able to have this incredible, no-brainer, have-to-do-it package, all-time level, 
then they could send it out on a dime to ensure that they got Paul George and with him Kawhi Leonard. Right there. That in and of itself, right there, this trade return is an example of how great of a job the Clippers front office has done. Now let's move on to the Russell Westbrook component of this trade. And so this was immediately my thought after seeing this trade was, okay, what now with Russell Westbrook? And after thinking about it, to me, I can't think of any Russell Westbrook trade that doesn't end up being what amounts to a glorified salary dump to eliminate or lessen Oklahoma City's financial burden quicker. Um, With that contract at four years for $170 million, you're not getting a meaningful, significant asset for that. For Russell Westbrook on that contract, you're just not. It's not happening. So when there is very, very low of a chance that you're going to get a meaningful asset, whether it's a young player or a draft pick or whatever, when there's such a low chance of getting that meaningful asset, in that case, the greatest value that you can get if you're Oklahoma City is eliminating the significant financial burden on your organization as quickly as possible. And the ways you can do that is trading Westbrook out for short-term large money. You're not going to find a way, based off of the cap space that teams have available to them, based off of the teams that would potentially even entertain trading for him based off of the contract itself, you're not going to have a way to trade this contract without taking in some large, sizable money in your return. So you have to really focus, and really this is going to be their only option, in getting the bad money that you get in return for Westbrook, ensuring that it's as as short-term as possible. And in thinking of the teams that he could potentially go to, you know, Orlando, um, Orlando would have been interesting had they kept Mozgov and not um, waived him or stretched him as they did today because that would have been a large per-year figure just for this year on expiring contract. Um I don't think that they would have been interested in him anyway. They're not a finished product. Um, I don't think they would have wanted to take in that contract on themselves. I think the teams like Charlotte, that's a team that a lot of people have said they have a significant amount of short-term, big-money, bad contracts. You have Bismack Biombo's expiring at 17 mil. MKG's expiring, Marvin Williams is expiring, Batum's two with this year and his player option for next year, his two years left. So in the sense of getting short-term bad money in return, Charlotte makes a lot of sense contract-wise, but they just spent $19 million a year on Terry Rozier. Because um, when you ha- when you can hard cap yourself to get a fringe starter, you got to do it, right? Um, and are going to be one of the worst teams in the NBA 
for the foreseeable future. So there's really not any value for them in bringing in Russell Westbrook. There just isn't. Um, so with how far away they are for con- from contending, uh, from contending, I don't really think it makes sense. Add in the fact that they just spent $19 million a year at that position. Um, so to me, thinking about it further, there's only two teams that make sense to me as a Westbrook destination. And those two teams are Detroit and Miami. With Detroit, again, we talk about big money in the short term. Reggie Jackson is finally in the last year of his deal, making $18 million. Langston Galloway makes $7 million. Right there with those two guys, that can get you the deal. Um, But to me, I don't think this is something that Detroit would be interested in doing. I don't think it makes sense because you're going to lock yourself in at that point to Russell Westbrook and Blake Griffin's mammoth contracts on the same team moving forward. And all flexibility will be gone. And those are two guys who, as they age, as they decline, as great and as good as Blake Griffin is and was last year, huge fan of Blake Griffin. I think he's underrated. But do you really want to have Blake Griffin and Russell Westbrook's contracts on your books as they decline over the coming years? And eliminate pretty much all flexibility that you have? That's not that enticing. So to me, and this is the only really, truly likely and realistic trade landing spot that I think exists for Westbrook. The Miami Heat. They have a lot of short-term money that's pretty sizable and pretty bad. You have Goran Dragic, 19 mil on expiring this year. Um, you have Kelly Olynyk for the next two years making 13 a year. James Johnson the next two years at 16 a year. Dion Waiters at 12 mil a year. You have a lot of short-term money that is way too much for the players that are being paid it. Um, Dragic and James Johnson gets you to Westbrook. Um, with Miami, though, it's two things that make it interesting or could get in the way with the trade Oklahoma City. One, at this point, trading the 2021 first, trading the 2023 first, and with that 2023 first having protections out to 2026, they don't have any first round picks to trade. So they're out of firsts to trade. And from Oklahoma City's standpoint, Oklahoma City is getting Miami's first in 2021 and 23. So if you trade them Russell Westbrook, you're making them better, which lessens the quality of the pick that you would be getting from them, potentially, depending on what moves Miami makes moving forward. Is that something that Oklahoma City would want to do? Would they want to trade Westbrook there, get the quick, shorter, after two years, complete elimination of that financial burden, but in turn, potentially make Miami better and lessen the quality of the picks that they are making? That's an interesting quandary right there. Um, But... Between Dragic's expiring, between the um, two years left on deals with big money like James Johnson, who has this year in a player option for next year, and Kelly Olynyk and Dion Waiters, the idea of taking Westbrook and 
turning him into short-term bad money to eliminate that financial burden quicker makes sense. Miami is a team who is continuously trying to add stars. They now have Jimmy Butler in the fold. It makes sense. It's a logical trade partner. Again, there are the roadblocks of Miami being out of first to trade and Oklahoma City's ownership of those 21 and 23 firsts, which are interesting to think about, but I just can't see any other team that makes sense as a logical trade partner for Oklahoma City for Russell Westbrook. They're the only real, realistic, logical landing spot that I think exists. And something like Drogic and James Johnson or Drogic and Olenek I think that makes sense because when you really think about it, Oklahoma City's really only option with Westbrook is just to get off of the money and turn it into short-term money that goes away as quickly as possible. I don't think that Minnesota would make a play for Westbrook at all. Um, I would be very interested to see if Minnesota makes a play for D'Angelo Russell once once Russell is allowed to be traded. Um that's a whole separate discussion, but I do not see Russell Westbrook to Minnesota at all as a possibility, especially traded for Andrew Wiggins. I think the Minnesota's priority is not turning Wiggins into another bad money deal for a better player. Their priority is getting off of that money. Um, and I think, as I mentioned, I very much think that Golden State acquired D'Angelo Russell with the later intention of flipping him for more suitable assets. And I think Minnesota is a logical trade partner for that. So that's something to watch moving forward. So I don't see Minnesota as an option. I don't see Phoenix as an option. As I mentioned, I don't see Charlotte or Orlando as an option. I think Detroit is possible but unlikely. There's such an incredible amount of quality point guards out there. And with this incredible uh, financial burden that you would have in taking on Westbrook, who is starting to decline... There's not a robust market out there for Westbrook. So OKC's options are very limited. Last thing here on OKC. OKC now, they're actually in a very good position for a teardown and rebuild. Because, again, as I mentioned, they accomplished the most critical and important component of kickstarting that rebuilding process, taking your top asset and getting the greatest possible return for it. In their case, they got a historic level return for it. They are now, as a result, loaded with draft capital, keeping their pick this year, having two picks in 21, in 22, in 24, and 26, and having swap rights in 23 and 25. After this coming year, the only... Outside of Russell Westbrook, the only salaries of $10 million or more on Oklahoma City's books past this coming season are Steven Adams, who, including this year, has two for 25 a year left, and Dennis Schroeder at two years at $15 million a year left. So outside of Westbrook, that's the only double-digit per-year salary on their books. You look at the young players that they have at their disposal. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, I raved about earlier. I'll rave about him again. The guy is a stud, plain and simple, a future all-star. Jeremy Grant, a starting quality 4 or 5, 
fits that super athlete, athletic mod, um, athletic mold that Oklahoma City likes to target. Have him in there at nine million dollars a year for the next two years. That is someone who is very valuable to have in the long term for Oklahoma City. Darius Baisley, who they drafted in the first round this year, again talking about their that super athletic athlete mold. Baisley is kind of a blank slate. He's really long, really athletic, elite physical tools and attributes. They can kind of mold him into the player they want him to be because, again, skill set-wise, he's kind of a blank slate, but the physical tools are really elite, and there is a lot of intrigue and upside with that. Terrence Ferguson. Terrence Ferguson has really become... uh, the perfect 3 and D player. Uh, I think he's a borderline starter. He had a bad start to the year last year. Played well as the year went on. Shoots the ball well from three. He's a plus defender. A very good player to have, whether that's as a high-end bench player or an eventual starter as a 3 and D wing. Hamadou Diallo, who they got in the second round last year. Again, we talk about that super athletic, super athlete mold. I think there's a lot of intrigue and upside with Diallo. So much athleticism. Really liked him last year. I think there's a lot of promise with Diallo. Um, Nerlens Noel, he's a tradable backup big. Every team in the league could use Nerlens Noel. He's a useful player to have as a rim protector and a defensive presence in the middle, or he's someone that you can flip for a second-round pick or two second-round picks. Um, and then sneakily, Lou Dort, who they picked up on a two-way deal after he went undrafted this past year, when he should have been a first-round pick, Lou Dort is someone who I think is going to be a contributor for this Oklahoma City Thunder team in the long term. So with all of those young guys I just mentioned, with the draft capital they added, with the potential cap flexibility dependent on what they do with Westbrook, they are in great position with an elite general manager in Sam Presti to tear it down and build it up. Um, And when you're a team who has the luxury tax concerns, the financial constraints that Oklahoma City does, having the ability to build out your team cost-effectively through the draft with significant draft capital and flexibility with the cap and having intriguing young players already, that's very valuable and very promising. So, again, I think that the Oklahoma City Thunder angle of this trade is the most interesting and I am fascinated to see what potential deal they can end up making for Russell Westbrook, um, how they make use of this draft capital moving forward, um, and how these young players I just mentioned develop over the long term. Switching gears here, let's go to the Toronto Raptors. Um, and really, the question just becomes with the Raptors, you know, we knew this was coming. We knew that... Even if Kawhi left, this trade was always the right move. Even if they didn't win a championship, even if Kawhi left, they ended up winning a championship, further validating it being the right move. Um, And it was always this. They're going to have one year to compete at the highest level possible. They did. They won a championship. And now they are ready-made for a retool or to go young. And the question becomes now with Toronto is, at what point... Do you ensure that you get something for Marcus Gasol, Serge Ibaka, and Kyle Lowry? At what point do you say, all right, we just have to get something 
for one of these three guys, for two of these three guys, for all of these guys? Do you wait into the season where this is a playoff team regardless of what they do with these veterans? Do you wait into the season and when you're potentially playing very well just to get something for them, you trade Mark Gasol or Serge Ibaka or Kyle Lowry? Is it easier to trade them in the offseason so you don't have to worry about the difficulty of trading them in season while you're playing well? Um, So... They're going to be a playoff team regardless, as I mentioned. So it'll be very interesting to see um, at what point do they think they can get the most value for these guys, and at what point do you ensure that, okay, we have to move them now so that we ensure that we get something and that it's as easy as possible to move them because to me, you know, going into the season with these guys, with this group they have, and being a top five team in the East and then trading Gasol, Ibaka, and Lowry during the season while that is happening to ensure you get something for them, I think that's a lot more difficult than if you were to trade them before the season. Now, that's assuming that there is a market that's suitable for a return for Gasol, Ibaka, or Lowry before the season starts. So that's the most interesting question to me is just at what point do they trade those guys and ensure they get something for them. Um, because long-term for Toronto, there's really there's no concern because you have your centerpiece in Pascal Siakam. You have your two main supporting pieces in Fred Van Vliet and OG Anunoby. Um, after this year, Siakam is going to be very close to a max player, if not a max player. Fred Van Vliet will become an unrestricted free agent. He's going to cost significantly more. So you're going to be paying them larger deals, but even still, you'll have financial flexibility, you'll have a lot of your own, you'll have all of your own draft picks, and you'll have a fantastic executive in Masai Ujiri, who has proven that even with a contending team, he works the margins so well and is so great at finding talent that Toronto is going to be very well off moving forward. I'm really not concerned with them. Um, You have your core centerpieces moving forward. You have a great executive. You'll have flexibility. Um, So I think Toronto is well-positioned moving forward. It's just a matter of what market develops and materializes for the aforementioned Lowry, Abaka, and Gasol. When does it happen, and at what point do they trade those guys? So now let's move to the last section of this podcast, and let's go to the Los Angeles Lakers. So first off, I'll say this. You can say whatever in hindsight, but the fact remains that when you are in consideration for a player of Kawhi Leonard's caliber, you 100% wait as long as is required to potentially get that player. They were 100% in the right for waiting as long as they did, for missing out on the players that they did, because the chance of getting Kawhi Leonard, I mean, it's the best player in the NBA, at the current moment. You wait as long as it's possibly needed. Now, the real discussion comes in as far as, okay, that $32 million in space, how did it get allocated and distributed? So, Danny Green, two years, $30 million. In a vacuum, is Danny Green a $15 million a year player? Absolutely not. But, as was mentioned by Bobby Marks, they had to beat Dallas's offer of three years 
at 36 mil. 12 mil a year, 12 mil a year right there. In addition, the Lakers have no draft picks to trade and no players that they would be willing to trade making sizable per-year salary figures. So Danny Green, at $15 million a year, once he's eligible to be traded in December, you know, if the Lakers want to make a move for another high-quality player, the salary piece that they have in Danny Green matches well with that. So I get it in that sense. But in a vacuum, $15 million a year for Danny Green, too much. But you had to beat out Dallas, and it gives you a big salary that's tradable um, in a potential deal if there is a deal out there. Um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, two years at $16 million. I can't say I'm surprised that Caldwell-Pope um, remains with the Lakers again. Um, he's fine. You know, nothing special, just serving as a nice depth piece off the bench as a guy who can score at the two, fine. At $8 million a year, fine. You can live with it. Not a bad deal. Decent signing. JaVale McGee getting a two-year deal where the second year is a player option for the Lakers room exception. Now, this is a one I have a lot of questions about. Um, where was the market that you had to give JaVale McGee the room exception? And not only the room exception, but a player option for the potential second year of that deal. Now, I get it. JaVale McGee occupies a role as a defensive-minded center who can protect the rim, but... He's not. He's how is Javale McGee more than a minimum player on a one-year contract? I there was no. It did not seem, at least, that there was a market out there that existed for Javale McGee for him to receive the room exception, and it especially did not seem so that you would have to include a player option in it. Who, who are they bidding against? And is it worth paying Javale McGee that much and giving him the player option? Even still, I don't think it is. So I question this deal pretty great amount because there was no need to pay him that much, no need to use your room exception on him, and no need to put the player option in there because the market for him really did not seem to exist to require either of those components. Quinn Cook, two years, six million total. I like that deal a lot. Um, I look at Quinn Cook. That's a guy who, for this Lakers team, where their guard play is going to be weak, um, having a point guard or a cook, a guy who's a combo guard, can play on or off the ball, can handle the ball, is a very high-level three-point shooter, that kind of um, offensive spark plug in a way, I think that's a useful player to have for this Los, for this Los Angeles Lakers team. Um I think $3 million a year is a perfectly reasonable rate for Quinn Cook. Um, this is probably um, my favorite signing that the Lakers made with their space today. Um, I think this is an excellent, excellent move by the Lakers, uh, getting Cook in there. Again, on or off the ball, gives you options. He's a very good three-point shooter, which you can never have enough of. 
So I'm a huge fan of this signing, and the rate is perfectly reasonable. Two years is a very solid term. My favorite signing they made today. Then we get to Rajon Rondo. Again, two years at the minimum, where year two is also a player option. I expected Rondo back with the Lakers all along. Um, I'll get more into my concerns with Rondo with the makeup of this team in a bit. But again, I never doubted that Rondo would be back with the Lakers. At the minimum, that's fine. Do you need to include a player option? No, but a minimum contract Rondo? Sure, why not? And then Boogie Cousins, one year at $3.5 million. You're the Lakers. You're looking to add talent all across the board. This is a team with championship aspirations. You've lost the ability now through trade and through use of your cap space. You have lost the ability to go out and get that third star. So taking a shot on Bookie Cousins at $3.5 million for one year with how well uh, Cousins and Anthony Davis played with each other on the Pelicans and with the potential for Cousins really looking at the rest of this roster, the only options as far as who are the guys that can emerge to maybe be that third star, you know, I don't think Kyle Kuzma is that player. I think that's an option they look at as maybe being the guy who can become that. But if DeMarcus Cousins can regain some more of that form that he had played at in the past as arguably the league's best offensive big man, maybe that can give you kind of, sort of, someone similar to a third star. Again, I don't think that's realistic, but at $3.5 million for one year, you take a shot on it. Him and Davis played well together. You're adding talent. Three and a half mil for one year, nothing to lose. You absolutely take that deal every single time for DeMarcus Cousins. Um, and then Alex Caruso, who was someone who I expected them to re-sign. I'm happy that they did. Um, but two years and five and a half million dollars, I know that there is reported interest from Golden State, but with Golden State so close, so close to the hard cap, their interest was it really that much that it warranted paying Alex Caruso five and a half million dollars over two years and using up all of your remaining cap space? I'm not sure. Um, but as a whole, the Lakers now have 13 roster spots filled, uh, two remain. I think to me, options that make sense for them to pursue for those two final spots. Andre Iguodala and Kyle Korver's potential buyout options. Korver, um, we believe that Phoenix is planning to buy out um, Iguodala with Memphis. Eventually, he's going to be bought out or traded. And then Avery Bradley, who Memphis just waived, paying him that partial guarantee. I think those three guys make a ton of sense as those who could potentially fill those last two roster spots for this Lakers team. Um, looking at their roster right now, you have Rondo, Quinn Cook, Alex Caruso, Danny Green, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and Troy Daniels in your backcourt. You have LeBron, Jared Dudley, and Talon Horton-Tucker. Um, then you have, obviously, Anthony Davis and Kyle Kuzma. And then you have DeMarcus Cousins and JaVale McGee. So, in looking at that roster composition, there's a few things that stand out to me. 
one with signing JaVale McGee and DeMarcus Cousins today, to me, that kind of indicates that they're going to play Anthony Davis a decent amount at the four. And I know that that's where Davis prefers to play. But with this roster composition, Anthony Davis should be playing a significant amount of time at the five. And with Corver, or excuse me, with Kuzma at the four and with LeBron at the three or LeBron at the four, sliding down Danny Green to the three, playing Contavious, Caldwell, Pope at the two, whatever it is. Anthony Davis should be playing a significant amount of time at the five. I know he prefers to play at the four, but that is not the wisest composition for this team. And if you're going to be playing Anthony Davis at the four a lot, you're lessening the impact that you can have from Kyle Kuzma, who you fought so hard to keep and not trade in that deal with the Pelicans. Um, Number two, Rajon Rondo and DeMarcus Cousins on the court at the same time. When Cousins, Davis, and Rondo were on the Pelicans a couple years ago, the pairing of Cousins and Davis, when they were on the court together, had a positive net rating of around 5. When they put Rondo on the court with Davis and Cousins, that net rating dropped to negative 1. Um... Rondo and Cousins on the court together, a negative net rating during that time together on the Pelicans. And really, to me, it's just that's such a major liability on the defensive side of the ball. And I don't like the combination of Rondo and Cousins on the court together. And the way that this roster is constructed them sharing time on the court together, perhaps a significant amount of time on the court together, is inevitable. And that's something that I think is going to have a pretty significant impact overall on the Lakers' success, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Their guard, their group of guards is kind of weak. Um... Again, based off of the roster composition, what was available to them, their salary cap space, you know, perhaps they couldn't have done, you know, that much better, but that's just a fact. Their guards are, that's a pretty weak group of guards, and that's something that they're going to have to compensate for when they move forward in the playoffs um, and move towards trying to contend deep into June this season. Next, um... I think the best use for DeMarcus Cousins on this team is coming off of the bench. Personally, again, I just said it, playing Anthony Davis at the 5, Kuzma, and LeBron as your forwards, um, I think that's the best front court combination for them. Um, I think Cousins may end up starting for them. I think Cousins' best use will be coming off of the bench. Um, I think it will be better for the team as a whole because there's I'm not crazy about the depth that this team has. So having someone like DeMarcus Cousins out there on their second unit I think would help a lot. Likely with Rondo starting and putting Cousins off the bench, that could potentially lower the amount of time that Rondo and Cousins share the floor together, which as I talked about has been proven to be a negative combination. So... I don't know if that's something that they're going to do, but I think that the Lakers, based off of that Rondo issue with Cousins, based off of their not great depth, I think they would benefit more 
from having Cousins come off the bench than by starting him. So I'm very interested to see what route they take. It should be Davis at the five. I don't expect it to be. So I'm interested to see what route they take as far as if they start Cousins, if he comes off the bench, who's the starting five. Um, And then ultimately, my ultimate conclusion with this Lakers team is a very talented team, but I'm not really a fan of their current state of the depth of this team. Um, I really don't like their guard group much at all. I think it's pretty weak. I think Rondo and Cousins together, that's something that they're going to have to actively have tried to avoid because that's going to be a negative overall. Um, that's a pairing that just does not work and has been proven to not work. And between that guard play, between Cousins and Rondo, between not being a great fan of their depth and between them seemingly building a roster where Davis will see time at the four. Again, it's a very talented team who has the chance to succeed in the playoffs. But despite that talent, I still don't see them at a level with the Clippers. And I see them in that range in the mix with Houston and Denver and Portland and probably towards the back end of that group. I kind of see the Lakers as around um, the four seed or the five seed as far as the Western Conference is concerned right now. Um, But again, if they can add Andre Iguodala with one of those last two roster spots, if or when Iguodala is bought out, Avery Bradley, Kyle Korver, I think those would be very valuable additions to this group. Um, It's just a matter of, again, the guard play is unavoidable. Cousins and Rondo has to be avoided. And they really should be playing Davis at the 5 significantly more than the 4. That'll about wrap up this episode of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Shout out to you, the listener, for listening to this episode. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. This was the Kawhi and Paul George to the Clippers fallout episode be sure to check in here on apple podcasts or podcast.com for more future episodes shout out to you the listener and as always goodbye and good night